What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Ranching Reboot Podcast. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher, and this is episode 95, brought to you by all my awesome patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Check the link in the show notes if you'd like to show your support for the podcast. This is the last episode for 2022, and if everything goes well, we will be back in 2023 with an interview you don't want to miss with Joel Salatin. If you're looking for more Ranching Reboot content, I've opened up the archives and I uploaded a bunch of older episodes to my Red Hills Rancher YouTube page. There's a link on my link tree, which you can find in the show notes. Speaking of link tree, don't forget to check it often. That's where I put special deals and discount codes. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Tyler Dolly is today's guest. And he's a contract pastured poultry producer in Northern California that does a few cows on the side. He's a second-generation holistic rancher that has also done grass-fed sheep, goats, beef, and hogs. Tyler and I get off into the weeds about chicken production and supply chain bottlenecks. We touch on greenwashing and get into burning and prescribed fire. Tyler asks me what I think about smart collars for cows, and we share some concerns about the future of ag. Okay, I know you hate ads. And I usually skip them too, but I'm going to ask if you choose to skip the ads, please check the links on my link tree and in the show notes. Clicking on sponsor links is a great way to show your support for the podcast. And if you choose to purchase from one of my advertisers, I very much appreciate it. I wouldn't be advertising a product that I don't believe in. That's right. I use the products that I promote because I believe they're good products and I hope you do too. This episode also sponsored by Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef. Bobo Links are my new favorite meat snack. Simple and clean ingredients, gluten-free, no grains, hormones, or antibiotics or dyes. Naturally preserved by fermentation, no nitrates, corn syrup, or liquid smoke. Bobo links are tangy and delicious, individually wrapped for maximum freshness. I keep one in my pocket for a healthy midday snack while I'm on the ranch. Try Bobo links today. Check the show notes for a link and use the code BOBOREBOOT for $10 off your first package. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, crew, I need to come clean. For the last two years, I've been taking grass-fed beef organ supplements. A few months ago, I reached out to several different brands, and I'm pleased to announce that I found a brand that I can align with. Introducing OneEarthHealth.com grass-fed and finished beef organ supplements. Look, we all know that the liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods available. Packed with iron and B vitamins, it's a great source of choline and folate. Sourced from grass-fed and finished cattle with no fillers. I take the beef liver blend and the organs blend, which includes spleen, pancreas, kidney, heart, and yeah, a little more liver. I take them every day and I feel great, except when I forget. Then I notice I have less energy and less focus. Check them out. Go to www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or click the link in the show notes. gonna miss a word this time huh not one single word how are you tyler i am so much better <laughs> you even sound better you look a little bit better so uh yeah great to see you again man yeah no i was uh i was hurting like the top of my mouth i don't know i don't 
don't know, it was just weird. Like the top of my mouth was swollen. Like a, like I got a bee sting. It was a weird, painful sore throat. Uh, just so everybody knows what we're talking about. We're doing this a week later than we planned, or almost a week later than we planned, because Tyler wasn't feeling well. We had the room on oh. the schedule, so we just went ahead and moved back a week. So, well, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Um, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about Tyler and where you're at? Uh, sure. So, I'm Tyler. We're Big Bluff Ranch. We are... Physically, where we are at, we are in Northern California, so we're about two hours north of Sacramento. Um, we're in we're in the Sacramento Valley. We are just outside of the fertile grounds of where all the walnuts and prunes and almonds are grown, and we're not all the way up into the timber country where all the other fortunes are made. So we're right there in the middle no man's land. And we've been here since about 1960. Grandpa bought the ranch then. And we've been um, kind of on an organic, regenerative, holistic management journey since the uh, early 80s. My dad went to a conference with Alan Savory back in um, like early 80s. Back when he was still... 84, I think is when he was... 82, 83, 84, I think is when he was around the, the West and the Southwest. Yep, yep. My dad saw him right there at the very beginning. So I would have been, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, something like that when he saw him. And so essentially that's all I've ever kind of known is how we've done that. And we've just been going farther and farther down that path. So we built lots of fences and um, put in lots of water, water troughs and water points. And, you know, we actually did do the, uh, the mythical double year carrying capacity um, for, for the ranch, which was pretty, pretty fun. So, you know, bought another ranch for free or whatever kind of the fun saying is. Then that led us in the nineties to uh, messing around with genetics, our beef genetics. So we started buying, bulls from um, the Hatfields, Doc and Connie Hatfield, who were the founding members of Oregon. I think they're Oregon country beef at the time, and now they're Oregon natural beef. It doesn't really matter, but they were, they were, uh, you know, short wide cows. And we started messing around with that and got pretty decent genetics um, for grass fed beef, not really meaning to, but we were trying to get, um, you know, low supplement on our cows. We were going for the least cost production. So we didn't want to buy winter hay. We didn't want to buy supplements that we didn't have to. So we were trying to fit the genetics to our environment. I hope that'll and, make sense. Right. Yeah. It was just cows, grass, water. You know, if you're kind of adding all that much more to that equation, you're probably making it harder than it needs to be. Um, I would agree. We, yeah. <laughs> then we tried to, well, then, then Michael Pollan wrote an article in 2000 or 1999, 2000 called Power Steer in the New Yorker, I believe it was. And that really was the beginning of the grass-fed beef movement. People knew about it before then, but he really blew it up where he followed the life of one steer from weaning through backgrounding. I don't remember exactly what through the feedlot and the processing plant and freaked out a lot of people about that process. And this is when a lot of people are like, Hey, uh, and at the end of it, his alternative was a grass fed beef. He bought a steer from someone and put it in his freezer and was like, Oh, this is amazing. 
And so that let's be honest. If the general public knew everything that happened to that steer after it left the pasture between pasture and the plate, they that's probably that's why veganism is winning. Like right. it, let's be real. That's why they're winning is because of the production practices, not just in feedlots, but in hog and chicken barns too. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, no, no one wants to know how the sausage is made. All they want to do is eat it. Right. So anyways, we started doing grass fed beef. I was at farmer's markets with, um, with our grass fed beef in the two thousands. We tried grass fed lamb, grass fed goat, you know, which was great from a production standpoint, because we have lots of hills and we have lots of brush, um, but not many people eat it. And they are a, uh, they are a full-time management deal. Like you don't kind of passively raise those guys. You're, you're paying attention to them a lot. And we didn't have the, the uh, capacity to raise them the way we should. So we got out of those guys. We tried a little bit of chicken and we did a good job by the chicken, but we ended up um, hand processing them, scalding them over the kitchen sink, you know, so you had, this the wet chicken feather smell wet chicken manure smell in the house so my mom was like no no everybody no, loves no. chickens until it's processing day exactly so we're like okay new rule four legs only so we um uh yeah we got out of chickens and we're like well the only thing left is pork right so we went into pasture pork well not knowing what we didn't know, we didn't know that, uh, well, we did know we had a lot of wild pigs around, but we didn't know that um, pigs, wild pigs, you know, you can train pigs to electric fence. I absolutely don't deny that. But when you get a, a wild boar who backs up about 50 yards away, goes at a full sprint to like zip through that electric fence to get your, uh, to your domestic sow in heat, like it, it doesn't really matter. There's not a whole lot that's going to hold that back. No, no. So, so our, our domestic pig program was just basically half wild pig. So the, uh, that little probably didn't turn out well. No, it really didn't really didn't. The genetics were weird. Their, their personalities were weird. It, uh, so anyways, got out of pigs and uh, we're like, well, let's get back. What do we get back into? Everyone else was around with beef. No, still is the case today. No one is valuing the beef correctly. So you're just like, there's no way you're making money at this price. You are losing money. But no, they don't even know that. So anyways, the only thing that was left was chickens. And we're like, well, no one's dumb enough to do chickens. We're kind of dumb. So let's do some chickens. Um, so we got into it. We got up to about the 1800 head a year processing on farm, reached a point where no one would answer their phone anymore when it was time to process them. Kind of like you just said, processing chickens. Everyone loves it until you start processing them. So then we, um, I went to a conference, ran into a guy who could raise or who could sell more than he could raise and I could raise more than I could sell. And that was pretty much when we flipped the switch over towards a contract growing situation where we were growing for someone else and they would put their label on it and distribute it out around through the, through the Bay area, which is about four hours away from us. And that was what we've done for the past 12 ish years, 13 ish years until COVID kind of blew that all kaboom. 
and we've it's built kaboom and a good or kaboom and a bad. Actually, it was kind of both at the same time. Okay. First, it was a bad kaboom. Um, so our big 10 year old contract went away, but then it went kaboom in a good way because we picked up another contract without missing a harvest, which was just unbelievable. They wanted more chicken for more money. And we're like, whoa, all right. And, um, but then they went kaboom. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a topsy turvy turn. So we've built back, um, some of our wholesale business, but the wholesale world has changed since we kind of first got started. So we're trying to get a direct to consumer um, program up and going. So that's kind of kind of my big thing these days is we've got the wholesale stuff chunking along in the background. If it gets better, that'd be great. But really, we're trying to go back to our roots of direct to consumer and you know capture that whole dollar and even above and beyond the dollar, just to to talk to the people about what we're doing, right? That it's it is perfectly pleasant to just ship your animals off to the slaughterhouse and get a nice big check, but there is something intangible about like having someone say, "I haven't had a chicken that good since my grandma made it for me when I was five years old." You know, that's pretty fun to get that sort of feedback. So can't really put a dollar on it, but it's definitely worth going after. Or when somebody says, man, this is what I remember steak tasting like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm doing something right. You know, so you said that you're contract growing chickens. And for some reason, that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand <laughs> up because I've read Meat Racket. I've read Wastelands. And it's Meat Racket is about how Tyson took over the chicken industry. And Wastelands is about how pork run off, how uh, waste from hog primarily hog, but also to some extent chicken farms in big confinement barns affect their neighbors in North Carolina and wastelands was talking about some lawsuits. And, you know, I don't, I don't think big cattle feedlots are any different. Um, don't know how many y'all or, or Tyler, if you've ever like driven through the Texas pan, Texas and Oklahoma panhandle, Southwest Kansas, those I've never been, I've never driven past the feedlot and gone, Oh man, what a nice place that smells good. <laughs> you know, that looks like it's such a good environment to live in. I've never driven past one and thought that. No. Nope. So maybe do you understand what I'm talking about when I like, when I have like some kind of red flags, when I hear contract right. chickens, um, can you maybe explain how that's not the situation you're in, like with a Tyson or a, a Smithfield or something like that? No, yeah. So when I say I get my business terms mixed up, right? I'm 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 a yo-yo raisin chicken. So in my mind, a contract is where I'm growing a product, someone else is putting their label on it and selling it on. So they could have also been buying from another pasture poultry guy, co-mingling our production, putting the same label on it, moving it on down the value chain. So in my mind, that's a contract. The, the buyer and I would sit down yearly and be like, okay, you know, how many had delivered for what month, for what dollar? Um, I, I suppose the difference would be like it, um, you know, one of the big chicken houses that they would provide you the birds. Mm-hmm. They would tell you what to feed them. They would sell you the feed. They would have their flock consult, flock health consultant come out and inspect your facilities. Is it 
is it something like that? Or are you more making the call of what birds you're going to buy, how you're going to feed them and you just deliver? Yeah. Well, we, we, it was, I call it contract growing. You're actually the only person who's ever called me out on it. So um, I'm not good, calling good on you. you. We are not, we are not a, we are not a, uh, a, when I say chicken contract, I am not at all anything at all like what Purdue does. We're not, or Tyson or whoever, we're not in a tournament system. We're not um, doing anything. This is a contracted out growing arrangement, much more like if you were to bring on a set of stockers where you're like, hey, you know, they're coming on at this weight, we're going to pay this much gain, and they're going to come off at this date. And this is the the contracted agreement to how we get paid. So it's when I say contract, it's much more that um, the guy and I sat down, figured out the parameters of of what, what he wanted, volume, weight, deliverables. And then I said, okay, well, this is this is the price I need to hit those deliverables. And then we signed the contract and we went on from there. So no, the what the the conventional guys do, those farmers, I mean, it's it's pretty horrible. They're like uh, you know, in surfs or you know, it's I don't even understand how it, people are still doing hard, that. It's hard for me to call that contract growing. Like Okay, it in my mind, you know, it's kind of what you said. I take them in by the head, by the day, or on gain rate, or whatever, and get paid on pounds or animals delivered and, and days that were here. And I guess that's kind of still the model in a hog or a chicken barn. But when you know the big when the big company, you know, I, I don't really want to get sued, which I might someday, but uh oh fuck Tyson. <laughs> So let's just say Tyson, because they were, um, you know, there's already been a book written about it. They sell you, they provide you the birds. They provide the feed. They provide the veterinary technical assistance. You know, they got a guy that shows up once a week to tell you how to run your barn. And you're there every day. And then they tell you when they're going to drop them off, when they're going to pick them up. Like, so what is, in that case, like, what is the farmer's actual responsibility past making sure those birds stay alive for three months and there's as many of them as possible. It's not, it's not a, it's not a good production model that, that gives any sort of thought to the wealth, the actual welfare of the animals, what kind of, you know, how they're living or or really the welfare of the workers that have to work there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not good. I would say that the economic incentive is for a cheap protein source and that I am actually very far removed from that world, but I could see how if the economic incentive is changed to something else. Like, for instance, um, the chicken industry has reduced their antibiotic use by some large percentage. And that is all driven by consumers that somehow the consumers like, I don't want super bugs, no more soap therapeutic um, or, or antibiotic use. And the big chicken companies didn't really want to go down that route because it's easier when you can crack open some, you know, antibiotics and you're good to go. But that the, the consumer demand was so strong and is still so strong that they are having to figure out how to go antibiotic free, not because they want to, but because that's what the market is compelling them to. So there are, 
ways where I, you can, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I can see that if you had an economic incentive different than what there is out there now, that this tournament system could, which is what they call it. So when they, they harvest all of the barns at the same time and that everyone, each grower is graded against each other. So some are above average, some are below average. And depending on where you rank, you actually will make a little bit more or make a little bit less money. Not 100% sure how it works, but you are being graded and compared and competitive, uh, you know, incentivized against your your compatriots here. And that's, you know, that sort of, <laughs> they need every penny they get. So they're they're extremely motivated to do these sort of things. So if you make the goal different and they get paid an extra penny a pound to do, I don't know, I don't know what the goal would be, but that whole tournament system is good. It could be used for good instead of evil. You just, but there's no, there's no one driving that. There's no incentive for that right now. You hit on, on something about, you know, cheap protein and cheap food. And, and I've been thinking, thinking a lot the last month about, the economics of food production and labor versus inflation and land acquisition costs and, you know, other input costs. It's really difficult to kind of square agricultural production in a large part of the country because of the high land costs and input costs. Oh man. Wow. Where were the, what the hell was I going with that? Uh, and they're, they're only getting worse. And I said it uh, on Just Nance podcast the other day. I can raise the question, have we reached peak Earl Butts? Like, have we reached the peak of get big or get out where there's there's very little room to grow bigger anymore and take on more debt that it's time for some of these operations to start maybe shedding off pieces to and, and give a younger operator a, an opportunity to start up? You don't. Uh, I would certainly like to think so, but that does not at all seem to be the trend for all the all the big operations I see around here. So down in the valley from us, that um, our part of Sacramento Valley, the actual fertile part of the Sacramento Valley, is just going into tree crops left and right, and that they're only getting bigger. There's not more mom and pops starting up. What's happening is the mom and pops started up 20 years ago and their 10 to 20 acres of walnuts aren't big enough. And so they sell out to, uh, to someone else who has, you know, 5,000 acres and it just happens all the time. You know, you drive down the road and come down the road again a year later, like, Oh, look, it's now owned by crane or now it's owned by whoever. And it's just, it all, to me, it feels like the consolidation is still happening and that it feels like that what's happening is that if you are an innovative, driven, young agricultural person, that if you want to operate at any scale, you got to work for these big guys and they'll give you a production unit or something like that. And within the umbrella, you can innovate. I'm not saying that that's the good way, but that's what the, that's the way it feels like it's happening right now. And, and I can see that. Um What's more valuable, the walnut crop or the long-term water rights that are guaranteed by having a tree that takes 30 years to grow? The, 
<laughs> well, in California, your water rights are probably more valuable, but you get those whether or not you have something in the ground. So you're, and this is actually what my wife does somewhat professionally. She is a water engineer. She knows all of the water rights stuff. It's way, we are well outside of all of that sort of California Central Valley project stuff. So I don't deal with any of the irrigation districts or anything like that. I watch it from a distance and go like, oh man, that's crazy. We but yeah, you have different tier. water rights for two hours a day every week for a year and nobody would still understand it. And it's probably true. So, so yeah, so the, it, it is silly to be putting in so many permanent crops in California with the way the water rights are structured and with the way the water's falling out of the sky that when you get down south of the Delta, down into the Central Valley, San Joaquin Valley, that I don't quite see how that's all going to play out in the long run. I mean, they're already having to lay off thousands and thousands of acres of gone fallow, and they're trying to just limp these poor trees along. And it's, and then there, well, then there's all this, you know, <laughs> California is just starting to regulate groundwater usage. So somewhere down south, they're talking about subsidence where the ground has literally collapsed feet, four, five, six feet. And that's basically all of your air pockets when that were full of water that became air collapsed. And you now can never restore water back into that aquifer again because it's gone. It's solid now. There's no. So it's all a little. It's a little hairy, really. Yeah. And then you have the whole urban versus rural argument about, you know, who deserves the water. So rural people are pissed at urban people and urban people are pissed at rural people. And it's like, <laughs> well, we need to grow food, people. You got to admit that. And Hey, city people need to, you know, take showers. I don't know what the answer is there, but it, it is. You can see the strain happening that the California water system from my very inexpert um, standpoint, is starting to show the strain. Because this was all set up back when we actually had more water. And if you look at these really long-range climate stuff, as long as Europeans have been in California, we've actually been here in a wet period. And right. that we are coming out of this wet period into a, a more historically average dry period. And that's so all of these systems that we have in place are based on the assumption of water at, you know, a higher level than we probably really should be expecting. So, yeah, over the next 30, 40, 50 years, there could be some pretty cataclysmic stuff going on here in California agriculture. And, you know, just for reference, you're in Northern California, so it's kind of like a different, you know, water situation and, and irrigation Um irrigation scheme than the one that's like kind of really fixed in the front of my mind right now which is what's happening in the lower colorado with like Mead and like powell and the thirty thousand foot view of it is of all the i think it's i think this number just applies to the colorado river basin but something like 80 percent of the water in the colorado river basin goes for agriculture okay yeah we got to eat we got to eat we got to grow food um, but people are realizing that there's a large part of that that goes to grow corn, goes to grow alfalfa. And like, there's a significant number of alfalfa acres that account for a lot of water usage. And that alfalfa uh, and that land is owned by Saudi Arabian corporations. 
and they load that alfalfa onto airplanes and they fly it to Saudi Arabia to feed to their racehorses. Like, you know, I'm complaining about $270 a ton alfalfa hay. Like, I can't imagine what the freight is on it to fly it from Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah, Arizona and Nevada to freaking Saudi Arabia. That's got to be absurd. They so, never even look at the bill, man. I, I know. You know. It's like they, they just laugh when they're putting their own fuel into the tanks of the airplane, I'm sure. But I think about things like that, and I remember, I kind of remember like in 80s and 90s when I was a kid, and we grew up about the same time, they didn't allow foreign nationals. They didn't allow foreign companies to own farmland. Like that, that wasn't a thing. I don't think it was. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, it, we touched on uh, cheap food earlier. Like that's that's one of the functions of government. That's one of the prime functions of government. Like to ensure that the people can eat and that food is plentiful and cheap to allow for growth. I mean, if we don't have cheap, plentiful food at the bottom, at the you know as the bedrock of the economic pyramid, the whole thing's on a shaky house of cards. Um, so there's, there's problems in agriculture. Like, you know, we talked about just a few minutes ago, you know, with feedlots and chicken barns and hog barns being kind of representing what I feel some of the worst of the industry and some of the worst animal husbandry practices that we can even dream up. They don't want to know how the sausage is made. They don't want to know how the bacon's made. They just want it all to cost a dollar. <laughs> you know, I can remember not too many years ago, my wife went to the store and brought home like a bag of a bag of chicken, like a two or three pound bag of chicken for two dollars, mm-hmm. three dollars. It was le- it was like a dollar a pound. And now we sit back and we think about that and we go how many people are exploited for that dollar 99 a pound chicken how many people get exploited for that you know 99 cent cheeseburger how much environmental destruction and how many externalized costs are behind that so a lot a lot all of them so let's wrap that back around to back to your chickens cuz that's where we were we were talking about how you raise your chickens Right. So yeah, we're pasture raised. So that means we're, we have no permanent buildings on the ranch, except for the ones we live in humans. So we, um, we do a, a, so I, I don't know. I don't quite know how to, how to, to, to put it together, but that the conventional guys right now, their main directive is cheap right? Their whole thing is cheap production. So we, as a pastor poultry person, we are not trying to get away from cheap production, right? You know, we have to be as reasonably effective as possible, but we just want to pair it with one other thing. And I I think what I'm going to, I don't, this is a, a, I'm going to talk my way through this theory. So I don't know if I'm picking the right term to start off with, but something about like, health like animal health land health um just health in general uh you know you know financial health for the ranch and so as soon as you pair this additional concept to cheap it changes your whole production system 
And so that, I don't, you know, this audience probably has a little better sense than some of the other ones that I talked to, you know, Joel Salatin wrote, um, pastor poultry profits, pastor profits, um, sometime in the nineties. And he was, yeah, that's right. You're going to talk to him next week. So yeah. I, so anyways, he wrote the book. I mean, and that really started the whole, the whole movement. Right. And so that's where we started off with, we had our chicks and we moved them daily and, um, just based on our environment between our, our temperature and our geography of our pasture, we ended up moving more toward a day range model, which means that we set up hoops uh, for the life of the flock. And the older they get, the farther they walk away from their hoops to get their fresh pasture. And then they come back. You don't harvest the, all the, you don't move the hoops like a chicken tractor. Not, not daily. Okay. Nope. So, um, because we, we just, we tried it. It's too hot. We couldn't build a hoop that would keep the birds from not baking. <laughs> and then we have creeks and hills and stuff like that. So the day move just never worked for us. So we, we kind of developed off of the day range model, which kind of was talked about by a guy named Andy Lee. And um, this allows us to raise a lot more birds with a lot less, um, lot less labor. So we're... We can do about 70,000 birds a year with two full-time employees out there. Um, How many, did you do that many this year? No, we're going to do about 50 this year. 50? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that many birds, I got to wonder where you get them from and what you do with them when they're ready to leave. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, right. Where do you want to start? Uh, well, start at the beginning. Uh, so we actually buy our chicks. Um, well, just for discretion's sake, I don't think it matters, but we end up buying them out of a, a one of the bigger chicken um, industries here, uh, companies here in California. So we actually buy them kind of off the back dock. So if they didn't come to us, they would have gone off to a conventional house. Oh, okay. And, and that's fair. I, and, and I get why you don't want to like say where, where your source is. That's totally cool. Um, I'm just, and the angle that I would go with that is if, if we have like, if these hatcheries have big problems, it, it seems to me like there's just not very many commercial hatcheries around. And if one or two of them has a problem, like that could really, really disrupt a lot, a large part of the chicken industry, uh, Am I reading that right? Is is that your feeling too? Um, so you're not wrong. It's hatcheries are reasonably plentiful, reasonably. Um, what really is limiting is egg supply. So there are only two or three or four large fertile egg suppliers that ship out eggs to all these hatch. So you know, if you if you have a hatchery nearby, very likely that that hatchery does not have its own breeding flock. It just buys in fertile eggs, puts them in the incubator, and hatches them out. So I know that there's two or three in California that do that. They just buy in fertile eggs, hatch out, and ship, which is totally fine. But it's so you feel like you have a lot of hatchery options, which may or may not be true in your area, but you probably don't have a lot of fertile egg options. I can't remember the name of the company, but it's there's one company out of like Alabama or Arkansas that ships 
yeah, 60, 70% of the fertile eggs in the U S for all the Cornish cross. So, you know, if you're, if, if you're really talking about trying to come up with a diversified, solid, um, decentralized chicken genetic situation, uh, anything that has to do with the Cornish cross chicken, which is 99.8% of, of the country, um, you can't really do that in a backyard, that the amount of genetic line breeding and cross breeding and back breeding that goes on, it's insane. There's no way that a small scale person can do that. You, you could What you could do is you could go to the, one of the more heritage breed, which would be a dual purpose like New Hampshire's or Rhode Island Reds or Delaware's or something like that. But then all of a sudden you're leaving, uh, you're leaving behind a ton of performance, like weeks and weeks and weeks on your grow out which translates to dollars and dollars and dollars per pound when you're going to retail. So is it better? Yeah, but no one's going to pay for it. We, we've got a couple big white Cornish crosses in our little chicken flock. We have like 27, 20, 29 yard chickens. And they're all mixed up, crossbreed. Some have actually been raised from eggs, which I think is an important point because, you know, like a, if there's one hatchery in the United States or one fertilized egg production place in the United States, that's like half of the Cornish cross chickens on the commercial market, like the red flag people, like that's, that's not great. Um, so we're just like I'm trying to do with my cattle, trying to develop a breed that works in this environment. Um, I've really been encouraging her to try to, you know, keep back a rooster, keep back the good hens that are performing really well and that aren't always right up trying to get food at the front of the line that, you know, that stay out and work. Um, we've got some pretty decent chickens. We've got, uh, uh, we've got one that's red, red, orange. He's a crossbreed mutant weirdo, but he makes really good, you know, he's a good rooster. Uh, I think he's three and a half and the Cornish cross that we got as like, you know, a, as, as a chick in the spring is twice his size now. Like, oh, yeah. but the Cornish cross, they're not as fast. I mean, he'll, he'll go out, he'll go out farther than the others sometimes, but he's big, fat, slow and dopey. Like I'm just waiting to see a coyote come out of the brush and just <laughs> snatch his ass and take him away. But hasn't happened yet. Hopefully we'll get to put him in the freezer in a week or two. Yep. So, that leads me to the other question. If you got 50,000 birds, I'd hope you're not doing all those in the kitchen. If you are, it probably takes more <laughs> than a day. No, no, no. We, uh, at, at that scale. So there is something, uh, under 20,000 birds. Um, the USDA kicks that inspection down to the state level. Each state has their own levels of inspection. So, um, you can process, depending on your state regulations, up to 20,000 birds on farm. Um, but at over 20,000 birds, you have to be USDA no matter what. So we've been going to a USDA plant for the past 12, 10 years, something like that. Um, and yeah, we're, we're knock on wood, we're kind of professional at it now that mostly what you see guys doing is they'll have plastic crates, you know, with the top open and you put your birds inside of it. I don't know if you've seen those, you see them pheasants, pheasant guys will use these fairly often to carry pheasants around. Um, 
we've upgraded to what they call coops or modules, depending on your part of the country. And it's a four foot wide, eight or four foot wide, eight foot long by five foot tall metal cage that has 10 doors on it. Each one of those doors holds um, 30 bird, 25 to 30 birds, depending on weight and age. We've got a 6,000 pounds four wheel drive forklift and we load that thing up and then we stack it on a semi-trailer and we load up about 3,000 birds at a time and on our semi-trailer and ship on all, ship them on off down the road. That's like 20, oh, 20 some truckloads of chickens. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. That's a lot of chickens. That's a lot of biomass. It is. Well, I mean, chicken. So I can't, I couldn't do the math quick enough, but you know, your average, our harvest weight is about six and a half pounds live weight when we harvest these birds. So 20, 50,000, so that's 300,000 pounds of chicken live weight. So that's say a, a grass fed steers to make the math easy, a thousand pounds. So that's like a 300 steer a year grass fed beef operation, which is not small but it's not huge either so when i say fifty thousand chickens people are like oh my god and they fall out of their chair but when you kind of convert it over into cow numbers you're like yeah it's it's decent but it's not like a huge operation if people think fifty thousand chicken fifty thousand chickens is a lot i mean well, yes compared to 29 fifty thousand is a lot but compared to what tyson what tyson's already done this morning and we're Monday, like it's noon on Monday. Oh, yeah. No. Like Tyson did 50,000 probably in the first half hour this morning. Probably more. More. Yeah. yeah 50,000. So a conventional barn, depending on the size, holds 20,000, 20, 30,000 birds. Most conventional guys run one to two barns at least. So basically, and then they'll turn those barns over four times a year, I think. So, you know, basically we are one half of one guy's barn in one turn. I mean, it's we're really, we're nothing. We're nothing. Um, so it sounds like a lot and it is a lot. There are a lot of benefits from having this much, you know, because you import lots of fertility in the form of chicken feed that you turn into chicken manure. Like there's all sorts of fun fertility stuff that's going on. Um, there are, so we're doing lots of cool stuff with this chicken. Um <laughs> Um, but so on, it's just kind of, it, it's what scale you rank it on, like on the impact we're having on our land. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Pretty big. Uh, are you ranking us on the production of like other pasture producers? Yeah. We're on the bigger side. Are you ranking us on any sort of scale of, um, conventional operations? We're, we're nothing. So our processor that we go to, they process 50,000 birds a week, and they are a pretty small scale operation where they do most things by hand. So that means that for a processing plant, kind of the minimum viable size of a processing plant, we are less than one week's worth of work for them. So another, another fun way of spinning that, which is where someone always goes to if you're in the direct marketing world is like, well, um, Processing, right? Processing is a bottleneck. How do you get them all killed? How do you get them turned into saleable product? Well, in California, we have two processing facilities. There's the one we go to, and there's one other one. Yeah, there's a third, but it doesn't really work out. Um, 
And so that there is a capacity there. Like we, when I, when I was doing 70,000 birds a year, I basically maxed out our current processor that they didn't have room for little people because I was bringing in a whole bunch of stuff for a whole bunch of birds for a client. <laughs> You're so bringing you a truckload every other home. week. Hmm? Truckload every other week. Uh, at that point, it was going to be a truckload a week. That was going to be, well, yeah, 3,000 birds a week, something like that. Um, we, so anyways, you want to get into owning your own processing plant. Everyone always says this, you know, on-farm kills the way to go. And I'm not going to debate the whole like logistics of it or the economic realities of it, but just to know that to keep the doors open, you need to basically process well, people are going to argue with this three to 5,000 birds a day. So you need to be able to produce and sell 15,000 birds a week, kind of minimum to open your own processing facility. So, well, let's call it 20,000 times 50 weeks. So you're looking at what a million birds a year to open your own processing plant yeah, just to keep the lights on. Right. And we're doing 50,000 birds. So there's another scale to, to drop this all onto that. You know, if you're you're really nothing unless you're doing a million birds a year. Kind of like you're not a whole lot in the cattle business until you're doing thousand, fifteen, two thousand head. Right. I mean, well, even at that scale, uh, so I think weekly weekly cattle harvest is something like six hundred and forty to six hundred and sixty thousand head. So yeah. I guess until you're uh, until you have your own feedlot of about a hundred thousand, you you're kind of a small player in the beef industry. And you know, puts it in perspective, guy with you know 120 cows or a guy with 50 cows, um, you know, we're we're kind of a speck of dust, and it puts things in perspective. Right. I mean, we're super important dust. I mean, not to like denigrate where we're at. I mean, we we're very critical to the whole system, but it does kind of. And this also circles back a little bit to the economic incentives of cheap. You only get cheap by getting big, right? So that's kind of why everything's gotten big. So that's, you know, to some degree, that's how, yeah, that's just how it's worked out. So we don't, we don't really want to get to necessarily be a million birds a year. That sounds like way too much work, but you know, 50, 70,000 birds a year, direct to consumer, making people happy, sharing the good word about all the fun stuff we do. That that's okay. That'll make a pretty solid living for me and my family. Okay, so at fifty thousand a year, that's you know, that's your contract growing situation. Let's let's circle back to your direct marketing channel and direct to consumers. Um, I, I get the impression you're trying to spin that back up and build that back up. Give me an idea of how many birds a year you think you can move through that pipeline and what your customer base is like. Um. I think, well, our our last contract grower was our contract grower. We were growing on contract was selling uh, about a thousand birds a week through their online site. So that's that's my entire market market research. There, I was raising the birds. I knew that they were selling about a, about a thousand of them a week through online. So. Boom. That's kind of to some degree why I picked the number. I want to do 50 ish thousand birds a year direct marketing because I know someone who was doing it with my birds from right here in California sold to mostly California consumers. So that's uh, and the market's only grown. I mean, the more you talk to people, 
I mean, the only sticking point to pasture poultry is that it's so expensive because people don't expect chicken to be expensive, right? Chicken is cheap. Whether or not that's true, it's not. Um, that's what people expect. So when you come to them with a chicken that is multiple times more expensive than what they are expecting, they're like, this is amazing, but I'm going to go get my Costco rotisserie for $3 and call it good. Because they don't, they don't realize the externalized cost of cheap food. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, like we talked about the environmental cost, the social cost, the, you know, the cost to the neighbors and all done in corporate profit, which, you know, circles back to the cheap food argument. And let's, uh, well, we'll run away from that can of worms, but I just, I've lately, I've been thinking that there's just no system of economics that adequately addresses the labor and energy requirements of food production over the long term. Well, I, you might be right. There's probably a reason why there has not been a uh, long-term sustainable civilization yet. All right. You got cows? We do. Yep. You said you do grass-fed cows. Yep. So what's that like? <laughs> they're they're basically a hobby at this point. I mean, we grew up as a, I grew up doing cow-calf. Um, you know, that's kind of my my uh my spirit animal you know people are always like well you must eat a lot of chicken i'm like i do but if you give me a choice i'm going with a steak (laughs) (laughs) it's like or uh wow that many chickens you must really love them i'm like well cows are more interesting they got personality luckily the guys who take care of the chickens think i'm complete nuts and they love our chickens and they're always telling me the goofy stories that the chickens do because you know you need to have that sort of relationship with your animals so Right. It's, uh, they're, <laughs> they're better chicken people than I am, apparently. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, the, the cows are good. I mean, so the ranches were about 4,000 acres, which uh, in this neck of the woods is about half size. We should, you know, to be a true cow-calf operation, we probably need about 10,000 acres of this sort of country. Um, so we're always... Part of the reason why we're doing all these weird things is because we've always been looking at how can we value add to the production here that for whatever philosophical, ethical reason, we never went to rent more land. We never because around here, a lot of people were in the valley. This is what they would call winter grazing ground. And then they ship their cattle up into the mountains, up into the Klamath Basin or up into the Sierras um, for summer grazing. We just never pursued that for whatever reason. It just wasn't something we chose to do. So it's always been, what can we produce here on these 4,000 acres and what, and when I, especially when I came back from college, like, oh, well now how do we make a ranch that can barely support one family support two? And that's where all this value added direct marketing stuff has been coming along. And that's one of the nice things about chickens is that you're not actually limited to your land base that you can actually buy in your outside input, right? You're buying in the grain. You can grow the chicken. So you're not really limited to your fertility. So that's one of the things that has been really great about chickens for us is that we've been able to grow more, more chickens here than probably you would do than we could ever grow beef anyways. Right. So you've been able to, I'm not saying that very coherently, but we can grow more chickens than maybe we could ever grow beef. Yeah. Something like that. 
I, I think that makes sense. I think, uh, well, chickens are a more efficient converter to begin with. Like, but chickens are kind of right up at the top of the, of the efficiency scale for conversion of protein to pounds of meat. Not far below them is going to be, you know, hogs and then sheep and goats. And then kind of towards the other end is going to be cattle. And, you know, since they are such efficient converters, I start to, the place that I, that I kind of always end up in my mind is, is inputs. Always mm -hmm. about inputs. And, ah, oh man, last guy I talked to that was kind of in your neck of the woods. I think he's on the opposite side, like two hours, the opposite way of Sacramento from you. He told me that uh, 70 something percent of the corn that, that they need in California for animal production has to come over the mountains. And 50,000 chickens needs a lot of feed, but compared to, I don't know, Harris Ranch or just one feedlot, um, you use almost nothing. Are you concerned about the price and availability of grain for your chickens in the near future. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it is our hugest input cost. I mean, for instance, so we are certified organic. We are also a no corn, no soy operation. Um, so our feed cost has gone. We were at, Oh, plus or minus $600 a ton about, well, probably 16 months ago now. And right now we're at about a thousand dollars a ton. So that, that's, that shows up. That's, that's a real number that shows up on the, uh, the price I have to charge customers. Part of the reason why our wholesale hasn't been growing as fast as it could is because we're probably, Oh, a buck, buck 50 more expensive because of our feed price. So yeah, it's certainly something I I'm worried about. Um, and it is really the true, the true Achilles heel to any sort of poultry operation, post, uh, pastured or not, is that those are outside commodity prices. They're influenced by world events, you know, the whole Crimea thing, Ukraine. And um, so, you know, if you look at, if you, and I don't have the numbers to prove it, but logically follow me down this rabbit trail here. If we internalize all those externalized chicken feed costs, so if we actually pay corn what it costs to grow it in the Midwest, if the soy cost is actually what it costs, if somehow we we pay the chicken grower, the contract guy for Tyson or Purdue or whoever, a real living wage, we somehow account for the dead zone in Mexico. I don't know how you do all this stuff, but you account for all of that. Uh, you Don't forget soil erosion. Tops. Oh, and soil erosion, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and all the other ones I'm not even thinking of. Um, now you put all that into the feed, into the chicken cost. Do you really think chicken's gonna cost three dollars a pound or two dollars a pound? There's no way. I don't know what it's gonna be, but it's gonna be way up there. Now you take that same sort of idea and you apply it to grass-fed beef, where you've got grass, you got sun, and you got cow. Yeah, there's some more, but I mean that's pretty much it more or less um so chicken actually is not a cheap protein it's not a chicken should not be cheap the only reason it's cheap is because of the the way the farm bill is set up the way the economic system has been set up 
and that um, really chicken, I don't know why, I can't remember why I went down this rabbit hole. Chicken should not be cheap. So one of the, uh, I really should figure out which president said this. His One of his presidential slogans was a chicken in every pot. Um, as in like, hey, prosperity. If you have a chicken in your pot, everyone is happy, healthy, and wealthy. Well, us modern people are like, well, chicken in a pot, big whoop. Well, the thing was back when that slogan came to into being, that not everyone had access to chicken. Chicken was a special thing. That chicken Sunday roast dinner was a big deal. That's why you had chicken on Sunday, because that was the 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 crown jewel of the week of your dinners or your suppers, depending on your part of the country. Right. And so when he was prom when the president was promising a chicken in every pot. That was, to some degree, the beginning of this whole cheap chicken idea that they took a very expensive, loved and an expensive and loved protein and made it accessible to the masses. And everyone's like, oh, I can now eat like, you know, this is like getting caviar for free or whatever. You know, it's like, it was a, a cheap way or not a cheap way. It was a way of making people love the politicians and getting them reelected. So. That's a little bit of a political uh, conspiracy theory there, but to some degree, that is why chicken is cheap is because 50 years ago, some president wanted to be elected again and congressman and blah, 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 blah. So I'm not really a political conspiracist, but there's definitely some machinations going on behind the curtains to keep chicken at the price it is now because it's it shouldn't be this cheap. I would definitely agree that it shouldn't be anywhere near as cheap as it is in a grocery store. And I think our beef price has to come up too. Um, and that was something I think you mentioned earlier was, uh, where did I make that note? Valuing the beef correctly, I believe is what you said. And, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about it with chicken about, you know, these externalized costs. And if we prop, you know, all this accounting was done properly, what would the food really cost? No one knows, but I, I, I do think that it's kind of clear that we're not valuing our beef correctly. And it, 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 the same is true for you in Northern California as it is for me here in the Plains. It's kind of difficult to sell grass-fed beef at the premium we think that we should be charging when the consumer's mind still has $1.99 ground beef in it from two years ago. And they don't understand that that same ground beef they paid 99 cents a pound for two years ago is now $4.99 a pound in the exact same meat case in the exact same package. like And, and they're not getting that. Mm -hmm. So what do you think there's going to be, do you think that's going to change in the near future that we're going to start maybe chipping away at some of that consumer perception that our premium isn't worth the price? Oh, I, 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 I don't know about that. I mean, I guess ooh, I, I'm going to do a politician and not answer your question at all. I would say, <laughs> I acknowledge your question. I have no idea what the answer is. Let me tell you what I want to tell you. Okay. So <laughs> what I'm going to say is that um, that's one of the reasons why I am, we are, you know, pushing into this direct to consumer is that to just be able to say, Hey people, this is it. This is who we are. This is what we do. These are the costs. This is it. This is how much it costs for us to grow this meat for you. 
and that um, certainly not a take it or leave it, but believe it or not, that this this is the thing and that the whole industry standard of mass customer uh, um, perception versus reality and and how to change that. And then you have all the, the various third party things that wash through there of like, oh, we're country of origin labeling, although I think only us producers care about that versus like, you know, natural versus like free range, you know, versus, you know, I don't, it's so big and crazy and convoluted that I try and bring it back down to a one-on-one -on -one level. Like, how do I tell you, my consumer, what I am doing and why it matters? And that if you agree with me and you buy my meat, this is awesome. We have a great relationship going. If you think I'm great but can't afford it, that's still good. I at least have opened your mind to the reality that production is way Prices and cost of production are so out of sync that at some point something's going to crumble. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised it didn't crumble any harder than it did over COVID. But eventually, these chickens are going to have to come home to roost. So, not only did I do a politician answer, I don't even think I answered my own question. It's okay. I probably do that a lot, and I never get called out for it. Um, Chickens coming home to roost. That's a, I like that turn of phrase. So, how how concerned about greenwashing are you of labels? Because you did say that you know you raise organic, non-GMO, no hormones, no antibiotics, and. I'm 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 asking that from the perspective because you know the other side, the the production side, the animal science side that's relying on science and needles. You know they'll say, well, if it's 30 days post injection, there's no antibiotics in it because it all processes out of the body. Well, does antibiotic free mean there's shouldn't be any in the meat, or does it mean there's never been any in the meat? You know what what do these things mean? Yeah, greenwashing. I, I, it's a that's a quagmire man you're throwing me into the deep end here so my my personal answer is that this is why i try and talk to consumers and be like i'm not greenwashing i'm telling you like this is how it is this is how i do it for us antibiotic free means i don't have any on the ranch i couldn't give it to them if i wanted to um the when you start going into grocery stores where you kind of are a, a hands-off situation that <clears throat> greenwashing is obviously a problem i mean the whole term natural i mean what's the actual definition of natural minimally processed or something minimally something uh minimal ingredients whatever i mean clearly that is absolutely meaningless but they actually get a, they still get a premium for it but on the other hand that means they took a step better right so to some degree i am i am a i am a big fan of making many small steps in the right direction being directionally correct so you know hey this is my favorite example you know organics we're getting a lot of organic stuff from china right. um is that really organic <laughs> probably not but is that pseudo organic china or organic stuff from china is that better than the conventional stuff from china probably right 
I well, mean, come and, out of the same farm and they just paid off an inspector to look the other way while they stamped organic on. Well, it. don't don't ruin my metaphor here, man. Okay. The idea is that the idea is that um, just if we can move in the right direction, that things get better. And that, like I said, that the chicken industry has reduced their antibiotic use by some large percentage. That's all consumer driven. And that's because some consumer was willing to pay five cents a pound more on a package that said antibiotic free or whatever the price was. Um, and they, they have, they are shifting a multi-billion trillion dollar industry because the consumers don't want or worried about superbugs. Um, and so the greenwashing is definitely there. You can see it happening even now pasture raised is starting to like get, you know, nibbled at by some of these bigger companies that are trying to show up in the grocery store. It's like, I just don't see how a nationwide brand can be truly pasture raised, but, um, so greenwashing is obviously an issue, but I think really, if you're seeing greenwashing, what you're, that means is the industry is trying to get ahead of a consumer trend and that they, you know, they want to kill it. They want to make money by it, but they see that the trend is happening. And so, I, you know, this both kill it. And then I also see them by joining it. You know, they like General Mills bought Epic Bars a few years back, right? General Mills sees the trend of, I don't know what that trend is, you know, meat bars, organic meat bars, high-end regenerative meats, and they couldn't figure it out their own self. So they had to go buy someone, bring it into their system. They what? They screwed it up. Well, I don't know that they did. Yeah, I mean, uh, okay. F- my opinion, they screwed it up. Like I, I, I feel like the quality went down. I quit eating Epic bars and I went to went to different products. What well, was- I never ate them in the first place. But just, I guess, my point being is that greenwashing is happening, but that these big companies are only greenwashing because they thrill feel threatened. And that even if they have to greenwash the truth, they've at least had to take a small step in the right way. So if as consumers, this is another thing I like to say a fair amount is that we choose our future every time we buy our food, right? This, this is how people get connected to the ground. You live in the city, you don't think you're connected to farming and agriculture when you eat every single day, right? So if you buy something, you are sending a very clear market signal that I value this. And that um, if you say, hey, I bought a pasture-raised chicken, you're saying I value this. Well, Purdue is going to pay attention to that and try and get ahead of that curve. And whether or not it's going to be 100% a true blue pasture-raised bird, uh, time will tell. But that it's more of a pasture-raised bird than if they didn't see that market signal. So I, I'm I'm not saying it's perfect. I just like the trending in the general direction. Drive consumer knowledge. Hey, pay attention to this. Vote with your dollars, and these big guys will eventually turn their course and follow us where we need to be. The thing that's going to worry me is when we come is when like USDA comes out with a definition of what a pastured bird is because you know like they'll eventually if they do they'll have to come out and say something like well a pastured bird means that it's never in confinement for more than this many hours a day it's not you know not on a roof for this more than this many hours a day that it's got a minimum of you know the whole pasture area is x square feet times y birds right yep and 
you know, agriculture is very vast and varied. And out here in the Great Plains, my context, my soil, my forage production is on a totally different cycle than you are. You could even go 40 miles in any direction from this ranch and that production system would change. Like the carrying capacity to land would change. How many cows, how many chickens, how many sheep, how many goats, you know, that balance, that ratio would change. And the danger that we have when we, when organizations start making these top down rules that are supposed to apply to everybody from Maine to Southern California, from Washington to Florida, it doesn't take into account, you know, the extreme variation there is in productivity and, and potential of the land. And even if we break that down to, you know, oh, well, that's why we have EPA regions. That's why we have resource concern areas. And it gets down to, I just feel like that the, the, the infinite complexity of trying to manage on the land for the health of the land can't be managed with top-down decisions without making significant sacrifices for the health. Does that make any sense? Uh, oh, yeah. No, I agree. I, I, you're right. One one size does not fit all. And I don't have an answer to it. I'm, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, hey, look, to my consumers, this is my answer. No, you, you have know? the answer. And the answer is connecting with the consumers and right. being transparent, showing them what their, what their numbers are. So, like, the next question i want to know is fifty thousand birds a year direct to consumer how many consumers is that that roughly you figured you're going to need to connect with um my i'm i'm saying a thousand families that my goal is to provide the protein for a thousand families in the bay area okay that's kind of our our mission statement customer demographic whatchamacallit and that's, do you figure that 50,000 chickens, I mean, thousand family, 50 chickens, a family, I mean, yeah, chicken a week, chicken a week. And you know, when you break down the pounds, it probably works out about right to average consumption. Yep. I mean, it depends on the family or, you know, a growing family or a pair, pair you know, a bunch of retirees, yada, 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 yada. But you know, a thousand, I, I mean, we can, we can grow enough enough chicken for a thousand families. And then, you know, I want to get back into our small ruminant production that <clears throat> this is the meat case you see in your store when you go to town is going to look pretty much exactly like the meat case I see here in California. But when we open the doors, push our cart out, like you're going to have flat planes. I'm imagining, I don't know. I'm going to push out. I mean, like, oh, I've got, you know, different. <laughs> I have hills around here. I've got tree crops, you know, and we're different. So it doesn't make sense that your meat case is the same as my meat case. And that it more specifically here in California, we're a Mediterranean climate. So we have cool, wet winters, hot, dry summers. So if you look at our production curve, we spike in the spring and tail off through the rest of the year. Now, if you look at a small ruminant production that spikes at um, pregnancy and then lactation, and then you can dry them off for a couple months and then pregnancy starts all over again. So if you layer those two production cycles on top of each other, Mediterranean climate is perfect for small ruminants. That in California in the 1940s-ish, there were more sheep 
oh, got to get this right this time. I said it wrong in the last podcast and I got excoriated. There are <laughs> in the 1940s, there were more sheep in all. No, crap. No, there were a lot of sheep in 1940. There were no, there are no sheep now. And right now in, in Tehama County, my Tehama County, there are basically no sheep. And so that the old timers knew how to grow, grow animals here. Like, well, this is great. We can grow amazing goats and sheep here. Like we didn't really have Buffalo here in California. Yeah, there were some, we had some big elk, but those also a grazier or a browser. And so it's kind of unnatural to have so many beef here in California. We really should have lots of goats and sheep. So the idea is that if we are truly trying to regenerate our landscape to pump as much health back into our landscape, the animal tools that we should be using are goats and sheep. Goats and sheep are a delicious, even though people don't eat enough of it. And that we have hills, you can't see it out because of the glare, but we are all sideways. We either flat or we're vertical and we're all brush. We, you know, on our 4,000 acres, we only have about 1,800 acres of good cow ground, a couple thousand maybe. The rest of that 4,000 is, you know, brushy crap that's great for goats. And that's not actually counting on on all the up and that's just a flat view that doesn't even account for all the hillsides. Right. If you started accounting for the hillsides, we probably have, I don't know, 6,000 acres that we could grow goats and sheep on. So the idea is that, and the California we have, we're in a mega drought and it's only going to get worse probably. And we're in a, you know, fire zone. It's only going to get worse. Well, what do goats and sheep eat? They eat brush. What's burning right now? Brush. What tastes really good to eat? <laughs> goats and sheep. Like it's, there, there is something really kind of fun and energizing about the idea of putting together the right balance of the right animals on the right landscape for the right reason, and then presenting them to consumers and be like, hey, people, by the choice of the food you make, you are going to create the environment that you want to live in. We are going to eat down all this brush so we don't burn. When the brush turns to grass, we're going to infiltrate more water. We're going to have more effective rainfall. We're going to have less drought. We're going to have less flooding, you know. And it's all because of what you choose to eat. And so listen to me because I'm a wacky guy with a beard, but buy our chicken, buy our goats, buy our sheep, buy some of our beef, and uh, we'll save the world here in California. You mentioned wildfires. Have have you had any near you or affect you since you guys? Yeah. Have- yep. Yep. We actually, um, the back thousand acres of the ranch burnt three years ago. Yep. So that was the August complex. It was at the time, it was the largest wildfire in California's history, which was three years ago. And I'm pretty sure every single year since then, we've had the next largest wildfire. So unfortunately, we were winning with the best fire that burnt the ranch down. But now we're only like third or fourth place. I can share that exact feeling. 2016, uh, March 22nd, 23rd, 24th. Well, March 22nd through the 26th, the Anderson Creek wildfire ripped up out of Oklahoma came up into my ranch, burnt the next ranch north, took a hard right turn and went almost 20 miles to the east. And when it burned, it was the biggest one in Kansas history, like 340 some thousand acres, pretty good size. And we thought, wow, you know, there's that's the biggest fire that we've had in Kansas from a single source. That was bad. Hopefully we won't see that again in our lifetimes. Right. 2017 was like, hold my beer. We had a little fire called the Starbuck complex fire. That was like 625,000 acres. And then in 2018, 
just south of me down in Oklahoma, they had some stuff down there that was just about downright biblical. I mean, so for all the listeners, you know, everybody's going to have a different perspective on wildfire, right? You know, from what you see on the news, what you see on the news is a lot of times fires in the West, you know, kind of out where you are, Tyler, you know, Montana, Idaho, Colorado, you know, where you've got these huge coniferous trees and big landscapes and lots of fire, lots of wind. The same stuff happens here on the Great Plains. It's just like our brush is smaller, our hills are smaller, but things are a lot more, things can move a lot faster. I mean, right. when a fire can outrun you in the grass and you're running 55 down the blacktop road, folks, this is a situation. You know, uh, just like you guys have the eucalyptus trees and the big pines and the firs and whatnot that blow up and explode, we have eastern red cedar trees. And in some places, some pastures, they've been allowed to get out of control. And there's, you know, 15, 20, 50% canopy cover these massive trees. Well, it takes a big wildfire event to get in there and light them up. But when they do light up, uh, you can see it on the NASA sees it on the satellite from the huge, huge heat plume that gets re released, turns the sky black. It's just nasty. So where I'm going with this is, is after a fire, and it kind of almost doesn't matter the timing of fire anymore, in, in my mind, okay? What matters is what you do after the fire to manage the land after the fire, when you choose to reintroduce grazing or browsing animals and whatever that looks like. Um, talk a little bit about your experience with fire, uh, if you have any experience with prescribed fire and how you managed recovery after the wildfire burnt that back thousand acres. Right. So we are actively actually pretty active, um, with, well, it's California department of Forestry forestry or something like that. Cal fire. We, we work with them a fair amount. We do as much as we can, um, prescribes burns in the winter. Um, I think things are changing, but it, it actually, but you can't obviously do a control burn in the summer because it no control possible. So you can only do control burns in the winter and you can only do a control burn when the veget the fuel load is dry, but the ground is wet. Well, those specific conditions actually happen a fair amount, but it only happens in a weather condition where all that smoke settles into the valley and then goes down into the city. So the air quality control board never lets these decent sized control burns happen because basically it'll smoke out the city. Um, so that has actually been a huge issue that, you know, any, any real firefighter I've ever met has always been kind of like a uh, back pocket pyro and they, they want to burn, man. They want to burn. So, so it, but, I, I, let me just make sure I have the situation captured. It's like, the people are starting to figure out we need to burn these forests because we haven't managed them correctly to manage the fuel load. Yes. Go prescribe burn. Cal fires like, yes, we need to do prescribed burning. Yes. We're going to do prescribed burning. The landowners are all like, yes, we see the benefits. We want to burn. The air resources board is like, yes, we see the benefits, but we're not going to let you do it because those old people with asthma down the Valley might not have a great day. Yeah. I don't know what their, their, their reasoning is, but yeah. I mean, I totally get it. You know, like if we're going to burn, I mean, fire's, fire's part of my culture too. 
and further east in the Flint Hills, where they have more of an issue because here when we burn in the Red Hills, we're so far away from population centers. Like, you know, we can burn an awful lot, not really risk of run any you know major smoke risk. Over in Flint Hills in eastern Kansas, if they do it on the wrong day, they're either going to smoke out Wichita, Emporia, Topeka, Salina, or Kansas City. It's one of them. Like somebody's getting smoked out the first week of April when the Flint Hills burns. That's just the way it is. Right. And to some extent, maybe that represents the difference in, in culture because the Flint Hills has always been like that. Like they've had a burning culture for decades and even there, it's not enough. Like even in the Flint Hills, they're losing the battle against invasive herbaceous vegetation and brush and, and whatever. Um, but the people that are downwind of them have always been a little bit more accepting of, of the smoke. And there's been, oh, in the last 15 years since I've been aware of it, because my work with the Kansas Prescribed Fire Council and, and smoke management plans with the EPA, oh gosh, that was 2008, 9, and 10. Um, the EPA has been trying to work in Kansas to get them to, you know, similar problems like you guys are having out there in California. Like, you know, they recognize we have a right to burn and it's a critical thing, you know, to maintain certain kinds of pasture lands. It's a critical thing to prevent the spread of invasive brush and habitat loss. But at the same time, it's, it's difficult because they have to balance the needs of the many downstream. And if they, if we're not burning enough, I mean, it, it's clear, you know, even with all the policies, even with the, all, everything that we've, you know, made strides forward in the last couple of years about raising awareness of prescribed burning, even here in my area, with as much as we've done in the last 10 years, it's not even 20% of what we actually needed to be doing. And we know that. But it's just so hard, you know, that's a, that's another set of problems. And I imagine you guys are dealing with an entirely different different set of problems when it comes to trying to get a prescribed burn off and finding just the right magic day with the right weather conditions and the right smoke management conditions to allow you to burn without affecting anybody else negatively. But then maybe the other side of the coin is, do have we failed in in reaching our consumers and letting them understand our challenges and the tools that we need to, the tools and practices that we should be applying more? Oh, I think the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, the only, the only education that I know about as far as fire management, fuel management is Smokey the Bear. I mean, I can't think of anyone else Right. You know, like there's this whole propaganda system with the kid and the smoke of the bear comes to the elementary school, and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And so I don't, you know, I can't even think of anyone else who has a countervailing idea. You know, it's like that it's almost smoky. The bear is the biggest problem than anything. So. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I don't, there's there's got to be kind of some sort of not quite cultural, but some sort of like top down re-education process. I think it was uh, it might have been something I saw come out of Oklahoma or maybe it was something I saw come out of Kansas, but it was from one of the Forest Service and it was a redo of Smokey the Bear. 
And instead of, you know, only you can stop a fire, only you can start a prescribed fire. Nice. And we even talked about like trying to get that on books and matches or get that on a mm -hmm. lighter, but we didn't think that, uh, that forestry service would be too happy about us using the likeness of Smokey the Bear saying, <laughs> go start fires. Uh, that would be pretty funny. It's res you know, responsible use of fire. And, you know, I imagine to some extent, Smokey Bear was maybe was kind of necessary. And maybe it did do a good job of saving the forest that now we've got to go fight the other way to protect, you know, bring back the fire, try to restore the balance. Maybe it's just another example of a, of a short-sighted government program with the best of intentions. Oh, I think, I think that's absolutely the case of, you know, it seemed to have come into existence for a reason. Um, but it was a, yeah, a knee jerk reaction to a situation without real long-term because I mean, to go down another rabbit trail, us humans, we're really terrible at long-term situations, right? We don't, we don't think in a hundred year, 200, 300, 400 year cycles. We're like, what happened yesterday? What's going right? to, and I think that's to some, what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's, that's kind of the problem with, uh, with all of these fuel managements is that we just had a very short sighted, like let's, at least in our area, it was like, let's take care of the timber. We don't want the timber to burn down. So we can't have any wildfires at all, you know, but no one really kind of started looking at, and I am not an expert by any means. So if there's any California fire expert listening to this, I'm sorry, I'm going to get this all wrong, but there are, they talk about stems per acre, like how many trees per acre you should have and that you can have, you know, you could have a hundred one foot stems or one or 10, 10 foot stems or something like that. So it's, you're talking about the same stem area, just how it's divided up. Well, those 10, 10 footers or whatever the right number is like, they're going to be pretty actually fire resistant because their surface area to volume ratio does not lend itself to burn. But those little tiny ones, you know, that's basically upright kindling. That's just asking to burn. And the only way you can get the 10 tens instead of the 100 ones is by basically burning it. <laughs> you got to burn them when they're small or graze them when they're small or do something to them when they're small. And then only 10 out of those 100 survive that you don't actually we have, you know, through our management, we have grown this fuel system. And that so that's one thing. And then also that the the cover you mentioned cover 50 60 70 percent cover that right here where i'm sitting we are i'm about 10 miles north of a very minor uh trail that they used to haul trail sheep from the valley back up into the mountains for the summer and then they would trail them back down in the winter and that it's called elkhorn ridge and that it used to have grass up there it used to be a good summer pasture well, I, I don't go up there very much now, but you go up now and it's just a whole bunch of men's that need a brush and like, you know, uh, digger pine litter or pine litter, you know, a foot deep. You don't see soil. You certainly don't see grass. And it's all because of all these big ass trees and brushes that have just grown over and shaded out the ground. Right. And so what the old timers used to do is that they would graze their way up in the spring and the last guy down and just drop his cigarette in a brush pile here, here, there, here, there. And he would burn his way back down the mountain. And then in the springtime, he'd go right back up and hit all those little burn spots because they were greening up fastest and earliest. And they would kind of put all the pressure on all the stuff growing back. 
And so that was the burn cycle. It was no, no big deal. And now, so they were going through what we call a chaparral belt, which is, uh, it's mostly comprised of a plant called uh, chemise or greasewood. And it's, it burns like, poof. With the name and that's, I would, I would expect it to burn rather well. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun fire. If you have any sort of pyro in you, this stuff is a stuff because it's all on hillsides, right? So if you get a pile going at the bottom, just the convection, just like, woof, you'll take off a whole five acre hillside in like 30 minutes. Just woof. amazing. Sounds like a V8 engine. You can hear it from a half a mile away. It's when did you say your burn season starts? Uh, well, used to, well, what the, the, the fi- wildfire season or the control season? <laughs> Let me go check plane tickets either way. <laughs> so oh yeah. Yeah. Fun. Well, unfortunately we all burnt that, right. It's all done that the big fire already got it. So you're gonna have to come back in like another 10 years. Um, yeah. uh, but it is a fun burn. Holy moly. You know, flames like 15, 20 feet in the air, just like, oh, and then it hits a digger pine and those things just like they'll poof roman torches like uh, it's it's both terrifying and mostly cool it's like that is a fire you get um, enough eastern red cedar trees in a small enough area hit it with a hot enough fire and you can put fire a column of black smoke solid black smoke really high and there'll be fire 100 150 feet up in the air up in that right column. right like, and you start back, you're a quarter mile away and you start feeling the heat coming through the windshield and you start backing up like maybe it's time back up a little bit. Yep. Another yep. Quarter that's mile, the good stuff. Maybe. Yeah, that's that's fun. So anyways, that I don't even remember, but that's kind of the idea to get back for us personally, goats and sheep and using not so much control burn as much as we can, but just using their presence to stay on top of this brush. You're asking about reintroducing animals and we don't have the goats and sheep right now. That's the problem in California that most of these wildfires are happening in areas that are steep cows. I'm a thousand pound cow. I'm a 1500 pound cow. I'm lazy. I'm not walking up this, you know, 90 degree slope goats and sheep are like, yes, please let me do that for fun. Um, <laughs> but we don't have the animals to do it. So right now it's just kind of growing back on its own, right? I don't have to worry about it. I can't get the cows back in there even if I wanted to. So the only only animals I'm going to have to control that regrowth are, are goats and sheep. And I don't have a market for them. I could take them to the local auction yard, but I mean, why not just shoot myself in the foot and save the trip to the auction yard, right? I mean, I can do the same thing a lot cheaper. So, um, so that's that is um, kind of the uh, from a whole bunch of different ways of why I'm excited about goats and sheep is because. You know, it's a market we can develop. It's appropriate to the landscape. It'll help us reduce our fuel risk. It'll help California reduce its fuel risk. And that the cultural legacy baggage of goats and sheep don't taste good is just wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry, but my grandfather, I, I, we are now old enough that we probably should be clarifying that our grandfathers had a really crappy time in World War II eating mutton. And mutton, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to eat mutton very often either. But mutton is a world of difference from lamb. And we just don't do mutton anymore. It's lamb. It's, it's a whole different whole different thing. Get over it, people. Your grandpa's dead. I'm, I'm coming around on the lamb. Like goat, ground up goat and chili. Yes, please. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm here for it. 
I'm still I'm we're still working on the whole lamb chop business. Like sometimes the smells just if it smells like greasy lanolin, right? Totally out. I'm totally out. If it smells good, if it smells like meat, I'm probably in. But that's uh, have you have you noticed any difference? Are are those hair sheep or those wool sheep? Have you noticed or you know? The... I don't eat near enough of it to be able to have any kind of educated opinion on the taste difference between hair and not hair sheep, sir. So the 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 story that I I always kind of tell, and it's probably not sort of totally scientifically accurate, but that lanolin is produced by wool, and lanolin's the the off flavor. So hair sh- or wool sheep tend to produce more lanolin because they have more wool, and so that the hair sheep tend to be a much more mild flavor. You, you you less often have that gamey lanolin flavor to it. So that's just kind of why I was asking. And also there's a, a um, age finishing thing, kind of like beef, right? If you have a, a stringy beef that you didn't finish right, right? They're going to tend to taste a little funkier because they don't have that nice fat cover. It's the same thing on your lamb. So even if you you want them finished. You're like, oh, fat has not have too much flavor, but you actually want them on an increasing plane of nutrition with a good fat cover, and it actually drops the the muttony off flavor. So, okay, random, random stuff. I, I mean, it makes sense that a hair sheep would have less lanolin, a, a lower lanolin level in the body, or fewer of those glands than a wool type sheep would. Makes total sense. Total sense. So. I, I kind of want to circle back to your cows a little bit. Um, black on black, black Angus. No, 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 <laughs> no. We're uh, um, we're we're a complete smorgasbord. Um, basically, we're 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 red. We're a red cow, red Angus. Um, the bulls we were buying from the Hatfields back in the day were uh, Tarente based. Okay, which is um, duh. Well, I'm actually on a ranching podcast and i'm going to say this and i'm going to be just totally wrong and people are going to throw rotten tomatoes at me but the way i would explain it i would say that the tarantays were the red angus of france which is totally wrong i understand it's wrong people don't send me hate mail but it got it in the mind of other people okay i mean and and i can kind of see that like it would be the parallel to what a what an aberdeen angus is but came from france right something like that. So we were, um, yeah, so we're, we're kind of a red, white face operation. I think I personal feeling, I read something in the Stockman grass farmer, Alan nation wrote it probably 15 years ago, where he said that, and it makes sense to me. Do you like to wear a black t-shirt in the middle of summer? No, take your infrared thermometer and you hit the height of your black cow and you hit the height of your red cow. And there's a huge difference. And that California, we're much more hot than we are cold. So a cow, you're better off to aim for a comfortable summer cow than a comfortable winter cow. And then much, so I've always been a proponent of red. My dad thinks I'm nuts about this, but I'm fine. I'm I'm, I'm fine with being right. He can think I'm wrong. The other, the other thing I remember reading is that the Angus had been bred black because of their region. They didn't have very much sunlight. And so that the whole idea was to make them black and they capture as much solar, what little solar energy they had to keep them as warm as possible. And that's why they're black from that area. And that when you bring that sort of genetics from a wet, cold climate 
and bring it out to us here in California anywhere, we are not cold and <laughs> we are not wet, or we are for about six weeks out of the year. It doesn't make sense. Like we should be much more looking, you know, you know, I don't know, Mediterranean climates, like a, you know, some sort of Italian breed or I don't know what, but that's, that's my philosophy on, on breeding is to, to, you know, not black. Even though everyone, everyone else around here runs Angus. Don't, don't, don't think like this is like some sort of red cow country. Everyone else runs Angus around here. Everyone thinks I'm nuts, but well, that, that's that, okay. I'm used to it. Hey, you see the picture behind me? Mm -hmm. I, uh, they're, they're speckled, spotted, colored, and spotted all kinds of horns and look funny. But uh, tell you what, this calf crop, the last two calf crops look mm, just right. beautiful, uniform. It's like there's six or eight of them that kind of run around as a group and that kind of go out underneath the wiring, go ahead and creep graze. And it's really funny. Went out this morning, took a veil alfalfa. They're all just carbon copies of each other. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Right. So, well, and, the, and like they say, they're all right under the hide anyway. So, what does it really matter? Yeah. Oh, that's a. That was a can of worms we were discussing on Discord the other day. We were talking about the CAB program. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that the guy that grades the carcasses into the CAB program never gets to see what the hide looked like. <laughs> that's one of the primary things that passes beef into the, that's like, that's the main criteria, right? It's got to right. be black hided, no white on the belly in front of the navel. Well, if the guy, the guy grading it to pass it into the program sees it after it's peeled, how does he know what color it was? I don't know. He's, he knows be very talented. So let, let's, I'll throw that out there. If you're out there in podcast land and you just heard me say that and you know the answer to that question, please write in, send it to me, redhillsrancher at gmail.com or find me on social media. I'm really, really interested to know the answer to that question. Oh, um, how do you, how do you get your cows through the winter? Like what's, uh, I'm assuming right now, kind of like me, you're on the downside of your forage cycle and your grass is mostly dormant. You're living on stockpile. So maybe walk me through a little bit of, of your forage chain through the, uh, not so great times of year. Uh, yeah. So we, we've reduced our cow herd by quite a bit from what we used to be. So basically our own owned cows are basically hobby at this point. We've got about, what do we got? 15, 20 mother cows and we keep back steers and heifers kind of on a, a very unprofessional level. I mean, we're, we just, we should have sold them all when we kind of really went into the chickens, but you know, you can't sell your cows, man. You couldn't so not have cows, right? Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to have them. It really doesn't make sense to have them, but you can't not have cows. That would just, so we actually are a winter grazing uh, option for, we've, we partner with a guy up in, um, well, it doesn't really matter. He's up in the Northeast corner of, of the Cal of the state. And then he'll ship down a couple, couple truckloads for the winter grazing season. So basically we are just playing. So our personal cows, we kind of run them in the nooks and corners and the bottom lands. And then we save all the range land for his cows when he ships in. Um, so basically it's a, it's just a brittle environment. So even though we, we actually have had decent fall rain, I'm actually, we're green right now, which is kind of fun. We just had a, 
inch and a quarter, inch and a half of rain over the weekend uh, with actually a little bit of runoff, which is actually exciting. That means reservoirs are being filled. Um, so when he shows up for the first couple of months, it's uh, basically just metering out stockpiled. You know, we've got, oh, what do we have? 12 or 15 permanent paddocks. And then we'll split those up with some temporary fence, depending on the season and what we've got where. And then um, when our forage starts turning on in March, we'll just start kind of rotating over into more of a fast growth, fast move idea. And we'll probably hit the ranch. So the five months that the cows are here, we'll probably hit each pasture maybe three times, once in the stockpile season and maybe once or twice in the green season, depending. So kind of like a about an average of a three-day graze in between moves? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, our, our, our fields are widely different in size because of the, our geography is all kind of funky. Sometimes when I see, nah, man, that's flat. Are you kidding me? You can put a fence wherever you want on that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Looks can be deceiving. It's not as flat as it looks. It's uh, no, I know the Canyon. That's okay. So the Canyon that's actually behind where the cows are over this Ridge. Yeah. Um, it runs for, it runs for about 6,000 feet. Well, there's two places to get across it. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's no. There, yeah, there's two places across it. One of them has a tree over it. So right. It'd be a little bit dicey to get around. And and that's all the way at the north end and all the way at the south end. I can get across that canyon. But anywhere in between that 6000 feet. You can't. And the sides of it, it's it's kind of a, a slot canyon that's cut into the gypsum. So it's 15 foot down on one side, five foot across on the bottom and 25 feet up on the other side for quite a bit of its length. Like, wow. Yeah. It's uh that's why it's, and it's in a 98, it's like a 98 acre paddock. It's, it's that Canyon <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Interesting. So you have to kind of like graze it, graze it in a circle then pretty much. Oh, I mean, they just kind of get turned in there. And if they need to go from one end to the other, we'll just go move the mineral or the protein tubs and let them be in it for a few days and cycle them right back out. Interesting. I've, I've got several places like that, that, you know, I feel like the paddock is just too big, but I can sit here for hours and hours and hours and design all the cool fences I want on Google earth. Right. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to go out and build that. And if I can't find a way, like if, if I have to build a significant, a lot too much of it on foot where, you know, I can't be gotten around or I can't ride the fence, you know, that just, that's like asking for trouble later down the line. Right. And if we're going to build stuff that's going to last, we need to plan to maintain it. We need to plan for what's going to happen when it's at end of life, of, you know, replacement of that. So you know, then I get into the thing like, all right, do I want to get the skid steer out or do I want to go rent a dozer so I can make some of this access? Well, it, as soon as I pull that root out of the ground, as soon as we bear off that soil, mm -hmm. it's eroding. Right. Like, they shut down. The reason this ranch exists and is still native range, what I like to call old growth grassland, which has never seen the plow. I've got, you know, over 90% of the ranch is old growth grassland. Never seen a plow. 
never saw a plow because it's not flat enough to pull a plow through. Like it, it, they just couldn't figure out how to farm on more than about a five degree slope. And I'm kind of grateful of that because my, my whole ranch didn't get turned into a damn wheat farm. Hmm. So there's, there's a lot of places that have just limited on how small I can get it by not being able to get across. Cause they don't, you know, they didn't farm it cause it'll erode. I mean, it, as soon as you take that soil cover off, take those roots out of the ground, there's some soil types that I have not been able to successfully get stuff to grow in five, six, seven years down the line. Right. And there's some of it that, you know, there'll be a place 50 yards away from that. I'll go and, you know, tear up some dirt and think, well, I don't, you know, whatever, don't care about this. If it ever grows again, I never drive by here. Well, then it'll grow, you know, big blue stem and Indian grass, eight feet tall. And I'll wonder why it did it over there. Right. <laughs> but not right. what I really wanted it to that I have to look at all the time. So, I get really hesitant about going into some of these steep areas with machinery to make access because I've done it and I know what it looks like and what it's like to live with long-term. So I don't have any answers and I'll just say that, you know, it is a challenge for it. It's a challenge to try to continue to figure out how to find those efficiencies and how to, you know, Maybe we can run a fence across here and saw this paddock in half. Okay, what's that get me? Well, that gets me another three days on my grazing plan, or that's another, you know, five animal units that I can run because I get three more grazing days because I got another move out of it. It just, it gets, it gets difficult to start finding those efficiencies when you're like, well, I could build that fence there, but that's two days with the skid steer to go make that crossing. And then every five years, I'm going to have to go back and rebuild that. Right. Do that 20 more times on the ranch. Like there there's, there's a point where it's just kind of almost diminishing returns on building more fences. I think. Have you, um, it just kind of floated across my radar screen these days. Uh, there's a couple of these virtual fencing companies where they basically are putting little shot collars on cows and GPSs and, one of them is called No Fence, and I found another one called Vents, which is kind of funny. Yep. Um, I don't know. I'm all excited about it. I have no idea if it's actually going to work. I'm excited about the concept because one of the holdbacks to getting goats and sheep out here is that they're going to go up these hillsides. I don't want to climb a thousand foot you know, hillside to go bring them down. And yeah, dogs and all that sort of stuff. There's a ways around it. But you know, if you could like program in with the callers, like, Hey, I want the fence to be here and they can graze this band to the hillside and they can do that band tomorrow. And, you know, then, then you don't have to build fence. So you just, you know, play with your computer on your app on your phone. It's like, ah, I like that idea. So this is, I mean, this is another one of those cans of worms. It's, but it's a, it's a wonderful subject. So if technology can make my life easier, more efficient, make raising cattle more efficient, easier for me to do, I'm here for it. Okay. I, yeah, no fence is cool. Vince is cool. Um, and then there's some tags that aren't necessarily a shot collar that are just more of a monitoring location tag. They're kind of like a Fitbit for cows, which mm -hmm. is really cool too. And almost every one of them that's on the market. And so we can talk about like a tag like Sirius or 701X, which is just basically like the Fitbit, the monitoring tag. Or we can talk about a system like No Fence or Vents, 
which is an actual shock collar that actually that has an audio alert. So we developed, let me back up a step. We lost a lot of our animal husbandry and herding skills um, over the last hundred years. Okay. They still know these things in Africa, like the Maasai tribe and, you know, the Nguni tribe, some of these tribes in Africa that, you know, that they herd their cows around and they, they, you know, they, they have intrinsically understood the principles of holistic management. Alan Savory shows up and, you know, shows them how to do it all on the map. And they're like, yeah, we do this anyway. Um, they still know how to herd their animals and, and operate them as a herd and live in harmony with them. We culturally lost that when we started putting up barbed wire fences. Okay. I, and I think a lot of the, you know, the rodeo Western culture that grew out of the fifties and sixties, I don't think that helped stockmanship a damn bit. So we invented barbed wire and we, we fenced off the range to keep our cattle home because this is my place and these are my cows and by God, my cows got to stay on my place. And then we invented poly wire. And to some extent, poly wire and, and good hot fence chargers kind of replace herding. And the way I make that make sense is like in an ultra high density grazing situation where you're moving them every day, you're moving a piece of poly wire every day. And the analog to that is versus having two or three guys take turns working with the cattle in a herd, keeping them in a certain spot to create herd impact in a specific spot. We're just going to put a piece of poly wire around that, put our cows inside the poly wire until they do their thing. So in that analog, the poly wire is basically replacing the physical skill, the physical labor of the herders. Um, we can also talk a little bit about, you know, the, the contrast to this all is what Bob Kenford likes to talk about when he talks about instinctive migrational grazing, which is some stockmanship techniques and movement patterns that help reduce stress in the livestock and help encourage the cattle to adopt a more natural grazing pattern without induced stress, induced handler stress, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I can hook you up with Bob and we can have a great conversation about this. Like it, there's, there's a future episode with Bob Kenford coming pretty soon. I think I just feel it building. Um, so going on, going on this line of thought. So now you know, the, the first tier of technology is going to be that poly wire and, and geared reels and, and Cyclops chargers that everybody loves. Then we get past that, the next step of the technology tree that we want to have, you know, on replacing the herder and, and the instinctual knowledge of a herder. Well, now we've got things like vents and no fence, which provide feedback to the animal, which is the same thing that the poly wire is doing, the same thing that the Maasai herders are doing. They're providing instant feedback to the animal to keep it in the location. Okay, that's cool. That's great. Contrast that with like a 70X or a series tag, which is just giving you back information about the animal, what state it's in, where it is, if it's eating, drinking, resting, and where it's been, right? And all this information is useful. And I can definitely see use cases for, for all four of these pieces of technology, but let's just go back to talking about vents and no fence. The really big use case I see for them is not necessarily for cattle, wouldn't necessarily be on a ranch like mine, because I can pretty much get across it. I can fence down with poly wire to a smaller area 
and a tighter stock density than would be within the feasibility of the collar to control, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because when, when your stock density gets high, you know, they're always close to a boundary. So they're going to be getting alerts more often, which is going to be more draining to the battery. So the use case that I really see for these series and these vents collars is somebody between you and me that's got some valley land for maybe some winter grazing and has mountain leases or mountain ground. So when you go up to the mountain in the spring, you put the collars on your program and you have all their boundaries programmed in. And every day in the morning, you just whip out your smartphone or you get on your computer, you do your check-in with all the, all the collars or all the tags and you see where everybody is. Right. I, I can see it being, like the, there's a very, very strong use case for it on public land, on mixed herds, when you want to control those animals and exclude them from certain areas, but you're dealing with a vast, vast landscape instead of, you know, trying to tighten them down and control stock density at, you know, above 25,000 pounds per acre, right? Mm-hmm. So I can definitely see a use case scenario for somebody, for somebody in that situation. And probably even for you, you know, if you have a lot of terrain that gets to be inhospitable to travel through. There's definitely a use case scenario because that, you know, these callers would allow you to have those animals up there and being managed up there with a lot more resolution and granularity than would be possible with, with polywire and a train herder to do that job. Like that's, would it be possible to do it with a herder on foot with a dog? 100%. But that herd and the difference is going to be, whereas let's say you've got a couple hundred sheep up in the mountains with, with collars or tags on them that are, that are moving them around or excluding them for areas. The limitation to that is still it's technology. You're limited on what you can see on your screen and how many times you're going to go out and observe the animals to see how they're doing, like how what percentage of the forage they're eating in the, in the paddock they're in. So my point is, is it a good tool? Yes. Are there use cases for these technologies? 100% yes, but we can't view them as a complete replacement for removing boots on the ground, eyes on the livestock management on a daily basis. Because if we're not out there, you know, observing what our livestock are doing and getting the actual feedback from them that can only come with your presence where your livestock are and on the land. I think we're going to end up missing a lot of targets. And we're going to, we're going to start maybe missing some, some key benchmarks that we need to be looking for again. And then, And we just say, well, that's just a sacrifice we're going to make in the name of efficiency because of economies of scale. So I think, uh, I think 701X tags are cool as hell. I think Vince collars are cool. I think that the cost structure where they're at, uh, I think some of them are way too expensive even for cows. And I think some of them um, be, be difficult. The difficulty is, okay, is the technology. And the return, the return value per unit, right? 
well, of course we make more per unit of cow than we make per unit of sheep than we make per unit of chicken, but then it becomes a turnover. Okay. You got to do 50,000 chickens to do what 300 cows a year do. Right. You know, and I imagine the sheep and goat numbers at somewhere in the middle. So then we start to be, if we're talking about putting a piece of technology on an animal. Now that technology comes at a cost. It always comes at a cost. And where I get to is the economics of it. Is it economical to put one of those things on a cow? That's it's easier to make that economic case. But when you're talking about a unit that costs, you know, 15 or 20 or a hundred dollars for the tag or for the collar, does it become economical to put them on sheep or goats? Because you have a much lower uh, return per unit on a small ruminant than you do a cow. There's faster, but there's faster turnover. But the prop, I just don't, it's hard for me to see on the published cost of any of these companies. It's hard to make an economic use case scenario on sheep or goats hmm. just because of the high cost and the low margins on sheep and goats. So like, I, I totally get where, where you're at, man. And I think that there's some fantastic potential applications for that technology. But the cost of it and the cost of that technology, like to apply to a small ruminant, that's going to be, that's going to be a big, big challenge. So the whole other side of the coin for me, for these smart tags or smart callers, is um you ever play you ever play civilization on a computer you ever play that computer game uh i'm not enough i know what it is but no never played it okay if you play if anybody out there plays games or anything like that like when you're playing these big simulation games there's a technology tree that you have to unlock okay you start at the bottom like one of the first things to unlock is a granary and then you unlock a library and you know and and as you go through the game you get the ability to build these structures, which unlocks other things. And you don't have microchips without refining. You don't have refining without mining. You don't have mining without, you know, certain types of tools. So in order to make microchips, in order to make a microchip and a battery energy dense enough that communicates with a satellite in outer space to determine its location on the surface of the earth within five feet in real time. It's a pretty simple thing that we're all very used to by now because we carry around a supercomputer in our pockets. And we can ask this stupid thing any question we want and it'll give us a pretty good answer. We can tell it we want to go anywhere and it'll give us the best route, the shortest route, and the most fuel efficient route. but it's a piece of technology. And if we want to build all this technology that requires a fully unlocked technology tree to replace what any human being can do from birth and say we're making progress, it's a little difficult for me to get there. Because really at the end of the day, that's what we're doing, okay? <laughs> 
we're trying to, we're going to put these collars or these ear tags on cattle. Why? So we can control where they're at. We can check on their health. We can see how they're doing. We know where they're supposed to be. We can move them around. Great. That's a herder's job. Like you just described a Peruvian herder and a border collie to me. So is the, and that's where we're getting to. And I think earlier we made, I made a comment about labor economics of food. And this is another part of that equation of the labor economics of food. So have we gotten to the point where there's, where this technology is so heavily subsidized and energy is just so ridiculously cheap that we are doing things like using microchips and satellite GPS to replace what a human being should be able to do with a minimal amount of training. I don't know. You asked about it. That's my take on it. <laughs> no, it's, I, I, I it was great. I, the, uh, I, I get very enamored of like the tech solutions. It's always fun to think about, but I think at the very end though, that was an interesting point you were bringing up is that to some degree, part of my, interest in vents or no fence or whatever is that it is not easy to hire in a skilled herder i mean you certainly go and don't go into town and put a job listing on the uh, farm store board hey need a herdsman you know so that skill doesn't exist culturally like you were just saying then you're talking about peruvians and that it's a high skill job if you find the person that's got the high enough skills you can't afford them and if you find enough you find the person you can't afford for the price that you're offering, they're not skilled enough to do the job. <laughs> right. So, so that's, um, and that's not, and that's happening all through agriculture, right? That's, you know, you know, California, we have a huge migrant worker population that comes through and picks all of the grapes and the tomatoes and the strawberries and all that sort of stuff. And they're, they're not coming anymore, not let alone uh, policies, border control policies, but just that they don't they don't come here anymore. So that there is a there is a huge shift in agriculture away from manual labor towards some sort of roboticized, mechanical, mechanized, uh, you know, digitized. Like it seems like that is the wave of the future. So I agree. I think it's much much cooler idea to have. Miguel out there with the border collie, you know, grazing the sheep around, but that's um, finding Miguel or, or pick a name. Like, how do you find them? How do you train them? How do you keep them fully employed? You know, as it, it becomes the, the labor issue becomes interesting. And I think that is happening to not just us specifically in my crazy goat and sheep idea, but that to all of us in agriculture, no matter where you are, you know, who's going to, who's going to change the pivots out there in the plains around you. Right. I mean, if you have any water left, but other than that, right. I mean, you know, that also gets into this whole corporate thing you asked about earlier that you get bigger and then you can kind of afford all this mechanized stuff. And I don't know. Now, now I'm just rambling, but I think my one little question about the really cool electronic fence stuff, like can it immediately dives into this almost existential crisis that agriculture is entering into, because we talked about in our pre-interview that the, 
the the demographics right that the oldest generation is now the biggest right basically every generation is getting smaller and smaller and smaller yep so i mean just on a very huge high level population level that the workers are not they do not physically exist let alone are they in your neighborhood they just don't exist in the population in general so who the hell is going to do all this work because those older mouths still need to eat um, at least for a few more decades, but there's no one left to grow the food for them and at least and take care of them and get out of this and support the tax base. And yeah, and that's just a whole nother can of worms that you like to open, right? Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting moving through the next 10 or 15, 20 years in agriculture and seeing what happens with let's just face it, a lot of the current producers aging out because it's, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me and hopefully it won't happen to us for the next 20 years, but we'll get to see the current generation, you know, one of the current generations go ahead and age out and see how that, see how that shakes out. It's, it's going to be interesting. And I think that we have as a society in the next 15 to 20 years, that there's going to be some interesting things happen. I'm not even going to say interesting decisions that are going to have to be made. I'm just going to say there's going to be some interesting things that we're going to have to choose to what we're going to prioritize. Are we going to prioritize cheap food or are we going to prioritize the health of the land? Are we going to put people to work or is everybody going to have a universal wage and we're going to rely on environmentally destructive technological solutions to sustain us? Are we going to try to put more people back on the land or are we going to convert everything to corporate farming? I think that the, like I said, the, the challenges in the labor economics of food production and we're seeing like the big crunch has come in the last couple of years with all the money that's been printed for whatever reason, inflation of the money supply means that everything has to go up eventually. And when everything goes up but the price of food, that means there's going to be less people that grow, a less diverse mix of people that grow the food because you know, marginal operations get pushed out. And it's tough. It's going to be tough. And uh, I... I still feel like the best advice that I could give anybody would be to keep working to shorten your supply lines, reduce your inputs as much as possible and get as close to your consumer and your customer as possible. We talk about, you know, how do we make sure our labels aren't getting greenwashed? Well, the way around that is shake the hand that feeds you connect directly with your producer. And if you're a consumer, well, that is if you're a consumer. If you're a producer, try to connect directly with your consumers. And that's why I question, how many consumers do you need to consume 50,000 chickens a year? Well, a 1,000. That's not that many. You know, that's a totally doable number. So we got to wrap up because I'm sure you got work to do and I got work to do. So where can we find you on uh, on the inner tubes, Mr. Tyler? Yeah, uh, bigbluffranch.com. Pretty pretty simple. Uh, you can find me there. 
my emails my email should be up there if it's not it's tyler at bigbluffranch.com um i like talking about this stuff if anything i said was unclear which is entirely possible and you want me to clarify it just shout at me and i will uh make some rational <laughs> rationalize my answers so it actually makes sense in the real world okay good stuff i um i don't get that much hate mail so i don't imagine you will either <laughs> yeah maybe the beards are too intimidating hey it if that's what it is that's why i don't shave yep all right, next time you're going to have to tell me why you like peanut butter on hamburgers. Sorry we didn't. Oh, you're right. Hey. Never. Definitely part two. There you go. Teaser. Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going to get out of here. Gang, y'all have a great week. Tyler, thank you, sir.